What repent means, quite literally, is to utterly and completely change your mind. And so when they preached repent, they were literally preaching, change your belief system, change your mind, change your mind what you believe about is right and wrong, change your mind what you believe about where you stand with God, change your mind about what you think is okay, you need to agree with God, change your mind. And it is such a convincing change of mind that it forces us to live a different way. John the Baptist had a mission to prepare the way for Jesus. His mission was to get people ready to receive the Messiah. How was John to do such a thing? What was his message? And how does it apply it to us today? What do we need to do to prepare our hearts for God? What paths do we need to make straight for the Lord? Listen in to find out with Pastor Joplin's message, Preparing the Way for Jesus. You know, passages of scripture like this, they help me a little bit. Because when I read the way that this guy did it, I'm like, well, I'm not all that tough. Uh, this guy just pretty much says, you brood of vipers, who warned you that hell's coming? And I'm like, well, you all think Pastor Joplin preaches it pretty straight sometimes. You're lucky you didn't have John the Baptist showing up and preaching to you. You know, John the Baptist, it tells us that he was the one whom Isaiah foretold that was to come and prepare the way for the Messiah, to prepare the way for Jesus. That, talk about a mission, talk about a purpose, talk about a calling of God. And the question then is, how? How did John come and prepare the way for Jesus? Well, we know he was John the baptizer. It's literally what he's known as. It's the sign that identifies him from all the other Johns. He's John the Baptist. Not John the disciple of Jesus, but John the forerunner of Jesus. And he came baptizing a baptism of repentance, preaching repentance. There was a way that people were to be prepared to receive their Messiah. And I want to submit to you this morning that there is still a way that we need to be prepared for God. There is a path that needs to be made straight in our hearts to prepare the way to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that John preached repentance. It is a message that was preached by all of the disciples. It was a command to repent, and then he followed with baptism. I want to acknowledge that John's baptism, it wasn't quite as complete as what we call Christian baptism. There was no way for them to fully understand what we're able to understand when we look back at the cross. We understand this morning that when we baptize these folks, we are baptizing this in symbolic reference that with Christ and in Christ, the old man has gone down, the new man has come to life. That the washing away of their sins is because of the shed blood of Jesus. We understand some things, 
more fully than what these folks who are being baptized by John understood. But there are still some really important truths about salvation that we can learn by studying John the Baptist. Three of them we're going to find this morning in our text. I call these must-bes. This must be for true salvation to occur. Number one, note, there must be a discovery of sin. This was what John was preaching against was sin. And in order for true salvation to occur, there must be a discovery of sin. In other words, the big problem that I have, it's not that I need God to help me be wealthy. It's not that I need God to take care of my sickness or my pain or my sorrow. It's not that I need God to make my life better. The reality is I have sinned against a holy God and I am an enemy of God who needs redemption. You will not find true salvation outside of a discovery of sin. I remember the day that I was saved. Most of you know my story. I lived a pretty wicked life before I was a Christian. And the reality is, I did a lot of things that I knew were wrong. My conscience told me these things are wrong. But I did them anyways. However, I never saw them as sins against a holy God. They were just violations of my conscience. I had no sense of terror, if you will, that I'm going to answer to God for the things that I've done. But on the day that I was saved, in that moment that my eyes were opened, my ears were opened, and I saw and I heard God for the first time in my life, and I knew that God was real. In that moment, something terrifying happened. I realized all those violations on my conscience, those weren't just wrong little things that I did. But I have sinned against a holy God. And I'm telling you that realization of sin, it terrified me. All of a sudden, I saw what I had done in an entirely different light. It wasn't just that I hurt some of you folks. It wasn't just that I had hurt people in my life. It was that I stood guilty. Guilty before a perfect and holy God. This is one of the first must-bes. There must be this discovery or this realization of sin where we see we are in trouble with God. I am convinced that when we look at the preaching of the disciples and the preaching of Jesus, this is why they spent as much time as they did preaching about turning from sin. You will find that it's true. It's true that there's no life greater than the Christian life. I've lived it for 20 years. It's been hard. We go through persecution. We suffer sin, sickness, and death. God does not keep us from all harm. But still yet, there is no life better than the life that has embraced its purpose that God created it to be. 
That said, you don't find John the Baptist, you don't find Jesus, you don't find the disciples pleading with people to come to God so they can have a better life. The purpose is because we are sinners who are doomed if we don't get saved. So this is the first thing that we see here from John the Baptist. This baptism was a baptism of repentance, turning from sin, which brings me to my second point. It's not enough to discover that I am a sinner in the sight of God. A lot of people get that far. But secondly, there must be a heart that is gripped by repentance. Now, when I use the word repentance, it's one of the words as a pastor I actually don't like using. And it's not because I don't like the word repentance. It's because it's not a word that we use in any other capacity in American language. And so it's not a real familiar word. We just associate it with like Christianity. So we assume repent means quit being a Gentile heathen and be a Christian. That's what it means. That's not what it means at all. And because of that, I hesitate to use the word because people think they know what it means, but most time they don't. What repent means, quite literally, is to utterly and completely change your mind. And so when they preached repent, they were literally preaching, change your belief system, change your mind, change your mind what you believe about is right and wrong, change your mind what you believe about where you stand with God, change your mind about what you think is okay, you need to agree with God, change your mind. And it is such a convincing change of mind that it forces us to live a different way. That's what repentance really means. And it's interesting, when you look at John the Baptist and you look at his ministry, here's what it says. John the Baptist began or came preaching, notice the first word, repent. You will find the same thing of Jesus. When the Bible says that Jesus began preaching, it says he began preaching, and the first word that it records is, and I quote, repent. And then when the disciples began preaching, and the Bible says they began their preaching, it was with the word repent. And then in Acts, when the Holy Spirit fell, and Peter gets up and preaches, and everybody says, what must we do to be saved? The very first word out of his mouth is repent. Change your mind. Change your entire belief system to the core of your very soul in such a way that you are totally, utterly convinced that God is right and you are wrong. Now this is something that on one hand we're commanded to do and on the other hand we can't do fully without the help of the Holy Spirit. I remember when it happened in my life, it was a strange thing for me. I wasn't raised in church. I didn't really know right from wrong biblically. And all I knew was all of a sudden I had this discovery of sin and then a heart that was gripped with repentance, a heart that is gripped with a change of mind. And all of a sudden I just, it was like my mind had changed. That's the best way to explain it. Like what I used to think would be terrible about church, I loved. You know, previously, before I was a Christian, 
I believe that Christianity was a horrible, boring lifestyle. Like the worst thing anybody could ever do. A list of thou shalt nots. Thou shalt not ever have fun again the rest of your life. You know, thou shalt walk around as some holy person who has zero influence in the world because you're weird. Thou shalt not ever laugh. And for me, Christianity was a ball and a chain in prison. Who wants that? Not me. The reality is the devil's a liar and true Christianity, it's the exact opposite. It's actually freedom. Freedom from the slavery of sin. But I was blind, I didn't know. But when my heart became gripped with repentance, all of a sudden it was like, oh, I don't think it is a ball and chain. And this is freedom. And this is wonderful. And I wanted to go to church. And I wanted to hear preachers preach. And I wanted to hear Christian music. And I wanted to hear Christian sermons. And then the things I once used to desire, I didn't. Des- not only did I not desire them anymore, I despised them. The sinful ways of going after my fleshly desires and the pleasures of the flesh, all of a sudden they were disgusting to me. And when I would find myself sinning, tripping up, making an old mistake, I was disgusted with myself. See, this is an example of a complete change of mind. And if you're truly going to be saved, you've got to have a discovery of sin, but there must be a heart that is gripped by repentance. And this is what I would call possibly the missing ingredient of modern-day Christianity. There is no expectation to repent. It's almost like we are too cowardly to tell people what Jesus had no problem saying, John had no problem saying, the disciples had no problem saying, the Bible has no problem saying, but we have a problem saying, stop your sinning. Repent, turn from your wicked ways. It is necessary for salvation. You must have this change of mind and change of heart that what God says is what God says. He's God, and I'm not. He gets to make the rules. I don't. I've had conversations repeatedly and regularly with multitudes of folks that have this false perception that somehow being a Christian just means, you know, kind of like love. You just love people. You just love, we just love one another. Here's what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so Jesus gets to define what love is, not you. Jesus said, if you love me, you will. Not you should. Not I would appreciate it. But that naturally what flows out of true love is obedience. You must be willing to repent of your sins if you're truly going to be saved. And the lifestyle that is not marked by repentance is a lifestyle that I do not believe you have any reason to have peace that you're right with God. 
there must be repentance. Jesus said it as clear as clear could be. I believe Luke chapter 13, about verse 3 and verse 5, he says it twice. Repent, unless you want to perish. Repent, lest you perish. In other words, there is no way to not perish without repentance. So we see John, he's preaching here about the discovery of sin, a heart that is gripped by repentance. He speaks of the fruit that follows. There is a fruit in keeping with repentance. You know what fruit is? It's something that proves what the tree is. I'm not a uh, tree guy, but there is a certain way that I can personally know, makes me feel like a scientist, if a tree's an apple tree or not. Guess how I know? A certain look on the bark that forms a certain way. Because it produces apples. That's how I know what other trees are as well. You look at the fruit that they produce. And John says, keep the fruit of repentance. In other words, there are external things that should be visible about the brother or sister who is truly a follower of Jesus. There will be this external proof, fruit of a life that has repented. Number three, there must be a conviction that we cannot save ourselves. You know, the very act of coming to the water was this outward act that I need someone else to wash away my sins. It was this inadvertent admission, if you will, by simply going somewhere else to be baptized, by going to John the Baptist or to Jesus' disciples, it was this admission that I am not capable of washing away my own sins. This is equally important in salvation. There has to be a discovery of sin. There must be a heart that's gripped by repentance. But finally, you've got to recognize you cannot save yourself. You cannot earn salvation through your own righteousness. You can't all of a sudden get saved like I did at about 20 years old and think, well, I hope I live till I'm 40 so I can live 20 good years that outweigh my 20 bad years. It does not work that way. You cannot save yourself. You can't give enough, do enough, serve enough, be holy enough, be righteous. You can't do it. We need God to wash away our sins. I remember that day that I got saved. There was that, I didn't even really know that I could be saved, but here's what I did know. I knew I couldn't save myself. I knew it was too late. I was guilty before God. I was a sinner. It was too late. I couldn't go back. I couldn't make him right. And there was this just, it was like I just knew. It didn't even matter if I lived eight, till I was 80 years old. No matter how good I was, I could never make right what I had done wrong. And there was this sense of just, I got nothing to do but throw myself in the arms of God. And trust in his mercy. And trust in his grace. We cannot, we cannot save ourselves. You know, I think there are folks that sometimes they have this desire. They want to be saved. They want to be right with God. 
but they think, I need to get this right first, and I need to get this right first, and I need to get this right. On one hand, as I have already clearly communicated, there must be a heart of repentance. You do need to be conscious of the stuff you need to repent of, but you will never, ever get to the place where you finally feel like you are perfect and holy and ready to approach God. And if you allow that lie to control your life, you will put God off the rest of your life while you're waiting until you finally have everything in order where you feel like you can approach God. You can't save yourself. And here's the truth. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. This truth applies to us all. We all need a Savior. This morning, you've got to come to grips with, if you haven't already, the realization you cannot save yourself. The final thing I want us to look at as we study John's message, you know, over half of it, more like 90% of it, is a warning. It's this warning about fleeing the wrath to come. You know, this is the motive. It is the primary motive that we see John, Jesus, and the apostles using when they preach the gospel to flee the wrath to come. Their message was not about coming to a better life, even though I believe Christianity is a better life. That wasn't their motive. That wasn't what they put out front. It was flee from the wrath to come. There is a very real wrath to come. And the warning stands today. There is a very real wrath and fury of God that is to come if you don't flee from it and repent and follow Jesus. In the New Testament alone, just the New Testament, I think there are exactly 260 verses, excuse me, chapters. And upwards of 250 times, we are warned about hell. We are warned to flee. We are warned to turn around, change your mind, that direction's wrong, Turn around and go the other way. 250 times. That is almost one time for every single chapter. Now, I want you to picture something. It's about, humor me, it's approximately 260 miles from here to Kansas City. Could you imagine driving from here to Kansas City and every 1.2 miles seeing a sign over the road that said, stop, turn around. If you keep driving, you're going to die. And then you just go right on by. And then one more mile down the road, stop, turn around. If you keep driving, you're going to die. Right on by. Stop, turn around, you're going to die. 250 times between here and Kansas City. What would you do? 
And yet most people with their own soul, they throw the warnings to the wind. Many of us, even as Christians, preachers who fill the pulpit, we refuse to warn people there is a real wrath to come. And we must flee that wrath by turning, changing our mind entirely and completely and agreeing with God, turning from our wicked ways and following the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the warning stands today. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place. I want to finish with the question of why baptism? Like why at the Jordan River? Why at this place? It says that everybody came, right? All of Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding areas. Everybody's coming to John the Baptist or being baptized. Why? I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, almost always when people come to Jesus, it was a public act. It required something of them. It required a willingness to declare to everybody, I'm not afraid, to publicly declare my life belongs to the one true God. Remember Jesus said that if you're not willing to confess me before men, then I won't confess you before my Father either. In essence, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. That, Jesus said that's pretty much the deal. That's how it works. We see that those who really despised John's message, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they showed up. Could you imagine a scenario like this morning, we're able to do baptism here in the presence of a bunch of folks that are like celebrating. But could you imagine a scenario if our, our walls were lined with people that hated what we did, were taking note of what we did, and were especially taking note of those who publicly declared their faith this morning? It'd be a whole different animal, and yet that's the way it was here. Sometimes I find myself questioning even my own method sometimes of how we give people a chance to respond. I'm not saying I'm going to stop until the Holy Spirit tells me to do so. I'm just telling you I've questioned it sometimes. We get to close our eyes, bow our heads. Nobody gets to look around. And you, in the privacy of your own little world, you don't have to let anybody in the world know that you need to get right with God. I don't know that that's real biblical. You're too ashamed, even in a church like this, to... Just say, I need Jesus. You're probably not ready to be saved. Can you imagine a scenario where on your wedding day, bride's coming in, and the groom asks everybody to close your eyes, please don't look. I don't want her to have, you know, don't want her to be ashamed that she's marrying me. Just between us. No, I said the whole world's supposed to know. This is a joyous union. I believe that's one reason it happened there that it was public. And here's the other. This is going to haunt a few people. God always makes a way. A clear, unmistakable way. It's not confusing. 
Here's the way. It might be hard, might be public, but here's the way. You want to be saved? Here's how. God always makes a way, and here's why God makes a way. He does not want anybody to perish. The Bible declares that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. He does not enjoy it. He is simply a just God who must be just. And He has provided a way of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He has warned us. He has warned us over and over and over and over and over again. Repent. Turn around. Repent. Turn around. Hell wasn't made for you. It was made for Satan and his angels. It was not made for you. I don't delight in the perishing of the wicked. I want all to be saved. God says turn around. Turn around. Turn around. Turn around. And then he says here's the way. It's easy. Here's the way. It's easy. Here's the way. And he does the same today. But do our hearts throw up that wall of pride and we say there ain't no way I'm going down to the Jordan. I ain't doing it. Not in front of my friends. Not in front of those Pharisees. I'm not doing it. God, you have to make another individual way just for me that's not like the rest of everyone. God says, no, I've made the way. This is the way. This morning... You need to know the Bible says today is a day of salvation. So long as you've got breath in your lungs, it's never too late for you. This morning, if you are saved, you need to spend some time truly meditating and thanking God for the reality. He saved you from the wrath to come. Get your focus off all the stuff you'd like Him to do in this little breath of a life that you have. And you just remember that you were a sinner who was guilty before God. And He loved you. And He showed you the way. And He changed your heart. And He washed away your sins. And forever, you're going to be able to worship Him in the place that we call heaven. Where there's no more sin. No more sickness. No more death. You spend some time being grateful this morning if you are saved and redeemed. And if you need to be saved, I plead with you to come. I do whatever I can to plead with you to come. I'm going to be up here at the front of the church. We're going to sing a couple songs of worship this morning. If the Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart, if you need to be saved, I plead with you to come and get me. There is nothing I would rather do than pray with you. Help you get it settled in your heart that you're right with God. If that's you this morning, you know the way. God has shown the way. Come get me and we will kneel and we will pray.